Hello, all of you lovely curiosity enthusiasts. Welcome to my podcast, Little Curiosities. I am your host, Kendall Long. Now, some of you may know me from that show called The Bachelor, where I was dubbed as that weird taxidermy girl or crazy taxidermy girl. And for good reason, because I do love taxidermy. I collect it. But beyond that, I have a huge passion for entomology, botany, science, and everything that has to do with our natural world and everything it has to offer. On The Bachelor, I was on a quest for love. But on this podcast, I'm on a whole new type of quest, the quest for knowledge. And each week, a little spark of curiosity brings a whole brand new spanking episode. And this week is absolutely no exception, because if you've been religiously listening to my podcast, which of course you are, why wouldn't you, you would know that we are rounding off Rot Month. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes on rot, I highly recommend you do. I talk all about how rot keeps us alive, the most intelligent slime in the world, and what exactly is on an astronaut's menu when dining in space. So please check out all those episodes, and can you do us a favor while you're there? Can you like this podcast and make sure to rate, review, subscribe? It really helps support the podcast and everyone here at Q Code that makes this show happen. Such a great team. Thank you, thank you. Now let's get to today's episode. Now, I'm not trying to be biased, but I saved the best for last. Prepare for my favorite form of rot that comes in oh-so-many-delicious flavors. I'm talking wine, chocolate, and cheese. The best inventions to grace the planet Earth, in my opinion. Because without the existence of our dear friend rot, we wouldn't have some of the favorite things we do today, and a host of other delicious foods. A world without rot would be a very sad world indeed. It's important to note that rot and fermentation are basically the same thing. It's just not too appealing to call things we eat rotten. That being said, you can't eat every kind of rotting food. Bad bacteria leads to food poisoning and many frequent trips to the restroom. Good bacteria has many potential health benefits. It can help support your healthy immune function, aid in digestion, improve gut health, and improve metabolism. Bad bacteria is rot that is uncontrolled. Mystery microbes and bacteria that have bad or unknown consequences when consumed. Like that forgotten Tupperware in the back of your fridge that's so packed with mold and fuzzy stuff, you can't tell what food it was to begin with. And what sneaky bad microbes are hiding in the shadows. (laughs) Fermented foods are made by growing desired microbes under more controlled conditions. How do we have the ability to eat some rotting things in the first place? Usually rotten food makes us sick, so it makes sense to have an aversion towards rotting food. But we can thank our ancestors from around 10 million years ago for our ability to break down ethanol, a flammable, colorless, and slightly toxic chemical found in alcoholic beverages. Why'd I say it like that? Alcoholic beverages. I swear, I haven't had a drink before recording this episode. But yes, you heard me right 10 million years ago, so we've technically been getting tipsy longer than we've been human. Ethanol is one of the things that causes you to get intoxicated, and it's a byproduct of plant fermentation. Fermentation is indeed rotting. It's the chemical breakdown of a substance by our favorite dinner guests, bacteria, yeast, and other microorganisms. These microorganisms eat the sugars in the fruit or other vegetation and convert it into ethanol alcohol. If we go back a few million years, our ancestors faced a few problems. There was a major climate disruption around the middle of the Miocene, which caused East Africa to transform into fragmented forests and grasslands. 
Our ancestors at the time started leaving the trees where all those fresh fruit grow and began exploring on the ground, which meant that for the first time, our ancestors started to eat more fallen fruit on the ground instead of up in the trees. Fruit that has fallen on the ground begins to rot and ferment, and in turn creating all that lovely ethanol. After all, alcohol is extremely calorie-dense. I try to remember that whenever I have a glass of wine, hence the term beer belly when one gets a little extra tummy from consuming a fair amount of this stuff. I try to stay away from all the beer here in Germany, but last time I went to Frühlingsfest, I literally drank a beer that was the size of my head. I didn't finish it, but that stuff probably had a lot of calories. In the wild, calories are a good thing because it means more energy to stay alive. And because of this tree-to-ground change in our ancestors' lifestyle, the ability to eat fermented fruit, now full of calories and ethanol, may have been a good advantage for animals. It is thought that because of this change, a mutation of something called ADH4 arose and was favored. If you're like me and you're like, what the heck is ADH4? Don't worry, I got you. It's basically a protein that helps to break down and metabolize alcohol. And without it, we would build up alcohol in our blood. And we'd be extremely cheap dinner dates and get inebriated much, much faster. Our primate ancestors that didn't have this mutation would probably have a pretty big disadvantage. They'd more easily get sick or drunk off of these fallen fermented fruits, and also being in a somewhat drunken state would mean they couldn't obtain food or defend their territory as well. In the brain, humans have pleasure pathways that link to alcohol, because just like sugar, it's rare to come by. And now, alcohol was linked to a key food source— so when they did find it, the brain is programmed to take advantage and overconsume. Remember, with these theories, it's hard to say what happened for sure because there's so little evidence that it happened oh so long ago. I wasn't there. You weren't there. Even our great-great-great-grandfather wasn't there. It's weird if you think about it. We have to rely on what we know. Scientists do their best to piece the puzzles of our past together, and with the few clues they have, they come up with theories on why we came to be, and it's cool to think of it that way. Another clue in solving the mystery as to why we can somehow metabolize alcohol is that other primates also have the ability to break alcohol down. Chimps, bonobos, and gorillas can all break down booze too, but the orangutan, baboons, gibbons, and a range of other primates cannot. So no alcohol for them, even if they are over 21. And like how I'll go across town to get a good margarita, chimps will actually go out of their way to indulge on a fermented cocktail. They have been observed, and this is funny, snagging fermented sap from palm trees being collected in Guinea. This sap is being collected to make palm wine, which is the favorite naturally fermented beverage for a lot of people in West Africa. And this wine goes by so many names, but my personal favorite, I am going to pronounce this so wrong, but it's called... Miri Ara Umu Mbe, which translates to breast milk for the orphan. <laughs> and this name does very much fit because when I looked at images of the palm tree sap collecting in the containers, they literally looked like baby bottles full of this milky white sap. So to collect this orphaned breast milk, palm wine tappers, as they're called, shimmy up to the top of the tree and tap the top of the trunk. They then hang these collecting buckets, not to be mistaken with baby bottles, to capture the sweet milky white sap. Surprisingly, this sap has a shelf life of only one day. One day, because it ferments so quickly. The yeast is so active, if held in a tightly sealed container, it can explode, like a little yeast bomb. 
To make it last longer, palm wine is often pasteurized to halt the fermentation process by killing off the yeast. It can last up to two years this way, which is definitely extending its shelf life quite a bit. But when it comes to chimps, they like it fresh from the source. They've been observed chewing the leaves that they use to cover the collection containers after soaking them up in the sap-like sponges. And then, after getting their fermentation fill, the chimps will swing on the branches with gusto and even pass out from intoxication. And there are definitely more animals that add to the animals seeking out alcohol list. So first, there's tropical bats who will often eat fermented fruit and nectar, and a lot of fermented fruit and nectar, because after consuming fruit past its prime full of ethanol, despite their blood alcohol contents exceeding that of what is considered legal for us humans, they seem to get around just fine. Researchers even conducted a test on bats who they fed ethanol, and they proportioned the dosage to their weight aka enough to get a bat buzzed, and then proceeded to test their motor functions in a closed kind of obstacle course. Think walking in a straight line, only instead of one foot in front of the other, the bats had to dodge hanging plastic chains. And on top of this, the bats' echolocation calls, the sound waves that they use to navigate and sense prey like flying moths around them at night, those were also recorded to see if they would, quote, slur their words. <laughs> and apparently, despite being quite intoxicated, bats can handle their liquor because they pass these tests with flying colors. Did <laughs> Another mammal that can apparently handle its liquor is the pen-tailed tea shrew. In fact, these small, rat-like mammals that reside in the jungles of Southeast Asia are said to have the highest alcohol tolerance of any animal. They literally live off the alcoholic nectar from the Bertam palm. The flowers of this tipsy tree have an alcohol content of 4%. That's the same percentage found in a lot of beers, like normal beers you can get at the grocery store. And this makes it one of the highest alcohol concentrations found in nature. So the nectar in the Pratam palm becomes fermented by yeast carried on the flower's buds. How exactly the pentailed shrew manages to chug enough of this boozy nectar a night to put even the seasoned frat bro under the table isn't too clear. They drink so much of it that it would be like me drinking nine glasses of wine in a 12-hour period. Except I'd probably be dancing on the tables at one point. The shrew doesn't show any signs of inebriation probably because there aren't many tables out where they reside in the jungles, right? It's not me. It's a them thing. It's the tables. <laughs> Adding to the list of fermented fruit-seeking animals are moose, who apparently get decently drunk after eating their fill of fermented crab apples. Now, these moose get so tipsy that a trending image of a drunk moose stuck in a Swedish apple tree was making the rounds of the internet recently— you must have seen it only because it was so popular. So apparently the moose got stuck in the tree after trying to reach like fermented apples from the tippy top branches and then it slipped and then fell and it got stuck and like wedged in between the tree branches. And the witness who saw it, he heard like a yell, like a moose yell and rushed out and he sees this moose like dangling in the tree. But honestly, in the moose's defense, that witness did say that it was raining incredibly hard. And I can't imagine moose's little hooves. I imagine like if it's raining and they're on a tree, it must be super slippery. So maybe it wasn't the fermented apples. Maybe it was just a clumsy moose. Either way, it was kind of embarrassing. And yeah, the moose was most likely a little tipsy. Also, I can't forget those little bugs because bugs also have a taste for booze. Entomologists will often bait their bug traps with beer or wine to attract our crawly friends. 
And speaking of fermented fruit, if it wasn't for rot, wine wouldn't exist. And I know we all know our favorite grape wine, but did you know that wine isn't always made with grapes? It can be made with a number of fruits, from plums, coconuts, mangoes, and even avocados. I recently came across an article that revealed the first ever wine to be made with avocados from Schneebly Winery in Florida. And isn't it incredibly California of me to say that I want to try it paired with guacamole? I just feel like that would be the best combination. But the thing about fruit is that it has a knack for becoming alcoholic. In fact, fruit just wants to turn into wine so bad, it could basically do it all by itself. Fruits have a high natural sugar content, which is why they're so freaking dang delicious. They also have natural yeast attached to them. These two key components help turn fruit like grapes into vino. When left on their own devices under the right conditions, with yeast in the air and all that natural sugar, you can create alcohol with fermentation right in your own kitchen, or even just right from the tree. Though I don't necessarily recommend eating rotten grapes or fruit you find on the ground, like the good old days, wine can easily be made from fermenting fruit of your own. Making one's own vino could be a skill that proves extremely useful when resources are limited and you have nothing but time on your hands. Maybe when doing time, because among the many wine producers dotting the globe comes a place where wine is sometimes made in a toilet. I'm talking about prison hooch, a.k.a. pruno, a.k.a. prison wine. Whatever you call it, making wine when doing time has been a staple of prison culture for years. Pruno has been described as bile-flavored wine cooler, which doesn't necessarily sound appetizing, but I'd imagine the smell probably wouldn't be that good either, which is why making wine in prison is especially tricky, because it isn't exactly legal, right? And something stinky brewing inside of a prison cell is definitely a red flag to prison guards. And it's also slightly dangerous, slightly as in it could give you a life-threatening illness called botulism. So what I'm about to tell you may sound irresponsible, but here's how to make it. And don't I don't recommend you make it, okay? But I did watch a YouTube video by BuzzFeed that had an ex-inmate teach a sommelier how to make a batch of this pruno, and it was an impressive process. Prison has limited resources, and a lot of items are restricted, so making and creating wine is even more impressive while you're incarcerated. One has to be pretty dang creative to make this stuff, okay? So the process starts with a plastic bag. Double-layered is preferable because of the dang smell and probably leakage. This bag is placed in a container, like a bucket, if it's available. But if not, then I've heard of people using toilets. Which, you know, kind of you. But you do what you need to do to get the job done, I suppose. Then a few fruits are mashed and added to the bag. The most common fruits available in prison are apples, oranges, and sometimes grapefruit. Along with this mashed fruit, they'll add apple juice and also fruit cocktail, like those little tiny cups you got at the school cafeteria. I loved those, especially the little cherries inside of them. Those were so good. So much nostalgia. <laughs> and lastly, a cup of hot water is added to this mixture. Hot water helps to break down the sugars in the fruit, and this makes it easier for the yeast to munch down on it. Yeast eats sugar, sugar gets digested, and excreted as alcohol. Yes, Alcohol is essentially yeast poop, and you're welcome for that fact. <laughs> Only a few finishing touches are needed to complete this pruno batch. Firstly, a few packets of sugar. Prison bosses have recently decided to crack down on the amount of sugar that inmates receive, so getting enough for pruno requires an outside source, such as from a family care package. If sugar isn't available, 
Some inmates will add jam, honey, or even ugh, ketchup to give it a little extra sugary boost. Ketchup does initially sound really gross, but it also makes me think of a Bloody Mary, so maybe they're onto something. Sometimes something called a kicker is added, and this is pre-spoiled fruit or a spoiled fruit cocktail cup, and this gets all the juices to bubble up and ferment with excitement. This bag full of mashed fruit, you got the fruit cocktail in there, the apple juice, ketchup, it's all tied up and then heated up. If you're like me and thinking, how can inmates heat things up in their cell? The answer is actually pretty impressive. So to cook, inmates rely on a trick called the stinger, which is essentially using electricity and metal nail clippers to heat up a pot of boiling water. So these bags are placed inside this MacGyver jacuzzi. If you don't know who MacGyver is, then ask your dad, because he probably does. The slurry of fruit goodness needs to be burped occasionally, and this is essentially when another yeast's byproduct, carbon dioxide, fills up the bag and is pressed out to ensure no bag poppage occurs, because that would probably be gross and ruin your batch of pruno. After three to four days, some say ten days, the yeast has done its job and the pruno is born, or pooped. <laughs> this fermented prison cocktail is then strained, and since it's not common to find strainers when locked away, inmates will often use socks, hopefully a clean one, to get the job done. I can imagine a gross sock would probably add like a different flavor, like a different aroma to the mixture. It might make it interesting. I've heard that this pruno goes for around $5 per cup in prison, which to me honestly sounds pretty affordable considering everything that has to happen in order to produce it. You have to be sneaky, find all of these resources, all these ingredients to make this stuff. So I think $5 is pretty cheap, okay, considering all of that. And the people who have tried it say that prison wine actually makes them tipsy. It gives them a little bit of a buzz. Now, this may seem like a crazy way to get a buzz to us, but creating a boozy beverage with limited resources and ones not initially intended to make you tipsy makes me think of the early forms of making alcohol. I can honestly see like 100% how the invention of wine and alcohol came to be back in ancient times. Someone leaves a pot of rotten apples alone for a bit. They come back in a few weeks or two and say, hey, this isn't half bad. Like I said before, fruit wants to be alcohol. You just got to give it some time. major question. Who is responsible for creating the first bottle of fermented goodness? It seems like a lot of places covet the title of first winemakers, but as it turns out, wine is so old it's tricky to pinpoint exactly when it started. The earliest archaeological evidence of wine fermentation goes back to 7000 BC, and it points to China as the first producers of the good stuff. In fact, China is the largest grape producer worldwide at 14,842,680 tons per year. That's like almost a million school buses, contributing to more than half of the world's grape production. Switching over to ancient Egypt, the tomb of Ptahhotep is said to have evidence of ancient winemaking. Ptahhotep was an ancient Egyptian visor, aka the pharaoh's right-hand man, during the 24th and 25th century. In his tomb that was built around 6,000 years ago, there is this scene depicting viticulture. In the image, you can see an arch of beautiful grapevines being harvested and even a large vat of grapes being stomped on by a bunch of Egyptians. I've always wanted to try that, stomping grapes. The Egyptians predominantly made red wine. Red wine resembled blood, and because of this, it was often used in ceremonies. 
And this also reminds me of how the Christian tradition uses red wine to symbolize the blood of Christ. So wine is used for a lot of pretty religious symbolism. Though ancient China and Egypt seem to be the earliest wine producers, the place that has been dubbed the cradle of wine and gets a lot of credit for the invention of wine is a country nestled between Russia and Turkey. It's on the Black Sea and called Georgia. And no, not the state in America. And it's here that archaeologists have found traces of wine creation that date back around 6,000 years. These Georgians made the remarkable discovery that grape juice could be turned into wine by burying it underground during winter. The underground wine was held in this large, egg-shaped terracotta pot called a quavery. These clay pots were coated with beeswax to ensure that they are waterproof. Some of these quaveries could be buried underground for 50 years. But why, oh why, bury these quaveries underground in the first place? That's because Georgians wanted more wine. Over time, wine became a big deal in ancient Georgia. Who can blame them? Wine is so great. And the demand for it increased. So in order to keep up with this demand, quaveries were built larger and larger to hold more and more fermented grape juice until they would bust. They couldn't hold any more. The process of fermentation also causes a lot of pressure buildup. So that also didn't help for keeping these pots intact. So the answer, of course, was to bury them underground. So that way they're more stable and can hold more wine. Being underground has an added benefit of being cooler, which causes a slower fermentation process, a.k.a. better vino. We get a lot of our modern wine culture from the ancient Greeks. And Greeks, let me tell you, they love their wine. Who doesn't, right? But they love wine more than your average bear, enough to have a god dedicated to this stuff. Dionysus. I love Greek mythology, and Dionysus has to be one of my absolute favorite Greek gods. Not only because he can transform into a lion and turn men into dolphins, that's pretty cool, but he also has something in common with seahorses. When little Dionysus was in his mother's tummy, just a wee little grape on the vine, she died as a result of his dad showing her his true form. His dad was Zeus, by the way. His mother was a princess, but she was a mere mortal, and she couldn't handle Zeus's hunky godliness, apparently. To save wee little preemie Dionysus, Zeus sewed him to his calf and carried him to full term. This story always gives me daddy seahorse vibes, and I love it. On a side note, seahorses are the only species in which a male gets pregnant and gives birth. Go seahorses. Now, in these Greek myths, Dionysus is also credited in giving mankind wine. It is said that Dionysus discovered the grapevine when he was a wee little lad and discovered how to make wine shortly after that. He was just some kind of alcohol wine-making protege, apparently. But Hera, being Zeus's wife, was always jealous of Zeus's babies from other ladies, tots with different brats. Anyway, she caused poor little Dionysus to go mad because she was jealous, which actually ended up being kind of a good thing for us mere mortals because he was just wandering around the world telling people about wine— Side note, toasting originated from the ancient Greeks dropping a literal piece of toast in your drink. In the 16th century, it was a common practice to literally toast a drink because wine back then was extremely acidic, so the bread would absorb all that acid and produce a better-tasting drink. So next time you go to a dinner, properly toast and put like that bread you get at the bread basket inside people's wine. They'll love you for it. You know what else goes good with a nice glass of vino, maybe with a little bread in it? <laughs> Chocolate. Chocolate is also a product of fermentation, which was a huge surprise to me. How can something so sweet be so rotten? 
Chocolate, as I'm sure anyone who has watched Charlie and the Chocolate Factory knows, comes from the Cocoa Pod and was discovered by Oompa Loompas. <laughs> Just kidding. The Oompa Loompa part, not the Cocoa part. The Cocoa Pod is actually not a legume or a bean itself, despite the word cocoa bean, but actually a fruit, classified more like a berry, with a seed surrounded by sweet pulp. These chocolate-producing pods grow on the Theobroma cocoa tree. Now, this tree is pretty funky-looking because the pods don't grow off the branches similar to apples or oranges, like you'd expect. They grow straight off the trunk itself and the thicker branches of the tree, kind of like they're afraid to wander off on a limb too far away from Mama Tree. I've actually been lucky enough to see one of these magnificent trees in person, and I've also eaten raw cocoa beans straight from the tree while I was in Panama. I'm actually going to be posting a video on my Instagram showing all of you the experience, so if you want to check it out, go check out my Instagram at It's Kendall Long. It was such a magical trip, honestly one of the best trips I've been on, and if you follow me, you'll see why. Anywho, how did I happen upon one of these chocolate-bearing Theobroma trees? I was being led through the jungle by a few guides from Tranquilo Bay in Isla Basamentos, Panama. My chaperones were showing me all the different edible things in the jungle surrounding this retreat. I ate a number of interesting items, including a mouthful of termites. That is a story for another podcast. It was such a weird experience. They were so crunchy, kind of tasted like carrots. But besides the termites, one of my favorite things that I tried by far was the cocoa plant. The seeds inside were coated in this sweet fruit, and the seeds themselves kind of flaunted this purplish hue. It was really pretty. You can actually chew the entire seed of the cocoa plant itself, which at times can be a bit bitter, but the one that I tried wasn't too bad. I personally really liked it. And it was here, chomping down on the very source of our world's favorite confectionery, that I learned how chocolate was made. And now I'd like to tell all of you. So first, the delicious seeds with their sweet pulp are harvested from the cocoa pod, and then these beans are fermented. See, you can't have chocolate without rot. The yeast eats up that delicious sugary pulp. This produces ethanol and starts to heat up the fermentation process. The yeast population dwindles as oxygen-loving acidic acid bacteria take over. The bacteria have acquired this name due to the fact that they convert the yeast-generated alcohol into acidic acid. The acidic acid that soaks the beans is responsible for the characteristics that make up the chocolate we know and love. It is responsible for the shift of flavor in the cocoa bean, from bitter to rich and nutty. It's also the reason why our chocolate isn't purple, but brown. Also, I have to point out something that I noticed. Did you notice that Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory always has a purple suit? Do you think he has a purple suit because that's the original color of the cocoa bean? It's a theory. It might be a crazy theory, but I think I'm onto something. The cocoa beans are then roasted, their shells removed and ground up, then transformed by adding sugar, milk, etc. into yummy, eatable chocolate. Side fact, I say brown because we're used to that, but unprocessed cocoa beans are actually more of a deepish red with a hint of brown. But the reason why our chocolate is more brown today is because a Dutch chemist came up with a method of making chocolate that removed half of its natural fat aka cocoa butter, then ground this less fatty product up and cut the bitter flavor by adding alkaline salts. This sweeter and cheaper chocolate became the new favorite, and that's why the chocolate we are most familiar with today is darker brown in color. 
If the delicious taste of chocolate isn't enough for you, there have been countless studies involving hundreds of thousands of people that show evidence that chocolate is good for your health, too. Because you know I need any excuse to eat chocolate. In these studies, there was a link between eating chocolate and a lower risk of cardiovascular disease. So really, I eat chocolate every day because it's good for my health. Now, this episode is chock full of all our favorite indulgences, and all of them depend on rot, by the way. Without rot, all of these yummy, delicious things would not exist. And to add one more to the list of delicious rot, cheese. Cheese would not be possible without our good old friend, microbes. It's microbes that are responsible for turning that white substance that comes from the cow's udder, aka milk, into that creamy, stretchy, pizza-covering magic that is cheese. When the first of the first people started making cheese, the main goal was to find a way to make the nutrient-packed but perishable milk last longer. The process of making cheese is kind of like mimicking how our body digests milk after we gulp it down. Along with adding a healthy dose of good bacteria and fungi, which helps to keep the bad microbes from building up, cheesemakers will also add something called rennet, an enzyme that helps to break down the milk. What the heck is rennet? Now, this fact may disturb all of you vegetarians out there, so if you don't want me to ruin cheese for you, now is a good time to put on some earmuffs. The most common form of rennet is often animal rennet, which is a digestive enzyme derived from the fourth stomach of a young, unweaned calf. I have read that these baby cows aren't unalived specifically for the contents of their stomachs, but they're often killed for meat production, aka veal. All you vegetarians out there will be happy to know that vegetarian versions of rennet can be made by using plants or microbes, but traditionally, it does come from younger calves. Rennet, animal digestive enzymes, help aid in the coagulation of milk, which separates milk into solid curds. This also gets rid of a lot of water in the milk, and cheese brings that down to around 30 to 60%. That water percentage depends on what kind of cheese you want to make. So softer cheese like brie has more, whereas harder cheese like gouda has less. Less water means harder cheese. The harder the cheese, the longer it will last because less microbial activity can go on in there. So that moist ball of mozzarella isn't really looking too hot when it comes to the aging category. Less liquid equals harder for spoilage microbes to grow, the bad kind of rot. These curds usually house all of that nutritious protein, fat, vitamins, and minerals that you get in milk. Most of the sugar that's initially in the milk drains away with the water. This watery sugar is called whey. Now, the curds themselves aren't all that when it comes to the tasting of the cheese itself. And we can thank Rot for all of the complex, delicious flavors of the cheese we know and love— for me, the stinkier the cheese, the better. And we can thank microbes like molds, yeast, and bacteria for the different types of cheeses we are familiar with at the store. For instance, blue cheese is aged with mold. Yeast and fungus are responsible for delicious camembert, and bacteria helps to produce Limburger cheese. Cheese makers add these microbes in a very controlled way to get the best desired results. Some add straight into the milk, Others are soaked in a bacteria bath, and some microbes are even introduced by being rubbed directly on the cheese wheel itself. No matter how you slice it, cheese needs the introduction of these microbes in order to get its funky good taste. Next time you walk down the cheese aisle at your local grocery store, 
take a look at all the many varieties, flavors, and textures of cheese. There are just so many cheese options, and we can thank a wide variety of different delicious microorganisms fermenting their little hearts out for giving us an array of options when it comes to impressing our guests with a cheese plate. In this way, the cheese we eat is very much alive. When we think of cheese, we think of that rich yellowish color. But have you ever thought about how cheese gets that color when it comes from milk that's white? The answer is grass-eating cows. Grass has beta-carotene in it. It's the same stuff found in carrots that makes them bright orange. But cows can't digest this beta-carotene, so it's in their milk. Now, this beta-carotene is scattered amongst the protein clusters of the milk that cows produce. Its true golden hue is hidden until it becomes more concentrated in the cheese-making process, making it more visible. After noticing that grass-fed cows had yellower cheese, the color of yellow cheese became associated with healthier cows and better quality cheese. And who doesn't like a grass-fed cow? But cheesemakers have noticed this trend of favoring yellow cheese. And the truth is, some cheese that has that rich yellowy hue isn't from the beta-carotene in grass. It's acquired from a natural dye called annatto. This dye is not found in the pasture with cows or anything they eat. It's found in the tropical achiote tree that has bright red spiky pods encasing seeds covered in an equally as bright red waxy coating. Today, achiote is one of the most commonly used natural dyes. It's responsible for bright orange cheddar cheese, and it's even used to color another one of our favorite cheesy snacks, Cheetos. Achiote isn't essential for cheese production, it just makes it look more cheesy, ironically enough. When it comes to what makes cheese yellow, most of the time it's thanks to the achiote, nacho cheese. <laughs> That's a bad joke, I get it. Okay, I get it, but I had to say it. On that cheesy note, I better wrap up this episode before I'm inspired to do more. Please stop me. I feel like it's only fitting to end this episode with a quote by David Wallace, who has written 20-plus books on conservation and natural history, and also many articles found in National Geographic, one of my absolute favorite magazines. In his writings, David claims, "...fermentation may have been a better invention than fire." From the many microorganisms at work helping to develop some of our favorite foods and boosting our gut bacteria, to our ancestors who depended on fermented fruit to gain enough energy to impress a mate and pass on their genes. One can say that although rot may be associated with death and dying, it also plays a crucial role in allowing the living to flourish. Thank you for listening to this episode of Little Curiosities. If you liked what you heard, please share this episode. Spreading the word and getting this podcast out there into the world helps us keep it running. And who doesn't like a little knowledge to boost and enhance their day? Also, leaving a comment helps tremendously, as well as subscribing to this podcast. If you are already subscribed, I love you and thank you for your support. Don't miss next week's episode. This is it for Rot Month. It has been such a fun month learning about all the rancid things that make our world the world it is today. Cannot wait to talk about whatever it is we're talking about next week. Until then, ciao! Little Curiosities with Kendall Long is a Q Code production. Executive produced by David Henning and Steve Wilson. Produced by Ryan Countshouse. Edited by Will Tendy. Music by Kendall Long and Will Tendy. Just checking in. 
and seeing if you might want to step away from the noise of the world for just a moment and connect back to you. If so, join me on my podcast, Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion, where we'll explore mindfulness, self-love, and personal growth as I share practical insights and tools to hopefully help inspire you to start to take charge of your mental and emotional well-being. Search for Letting It Settle with Michael Gallion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening now. I'm Carlos King, one of the most sought-after executive producers in reality television. I am thrilled to announce Reality with the King, where we'll discuss all things reality TV. I have interviewed everyone from Nene Leakes, Teresa Judai, and Kenya Moore. Each episode, we will rehash shocking portrayals, honey. Yes! Hilarious shade! And all the drama. Reality with the King podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts.